This episode is proudly sponsored by ShakeBay, Canada's easiest way to buy and earn Bitcoin in 10 minutes or less with no deposit or withdrawal fees. It's so easy, even the boomer can do it. Guys, I've personally been using ShakePay for several years and highly recommend them. Their mobile app makes it super easy to buy and sell Bitcoin. All you have to do is e-transfer directly to your ShakePay account and you're ready to go. So head over to shakepay.com or download the mobile app, use the referral code LOONYHOUR and get $30 of free Bitcoin when you sign up. ShakePay gives out free Bitcoin to every user every day just by shaking your phone. They call this the shaking sats feature. It's awesome. I highly encourage you to go check it out. ShakePay has also just launched one of Canada's only Bitcoin cashback prepaid credit cards, which gives users up to 2% Bitcoin cashback on every transaction. If you want to opt out, Canadian dollars and start earning rewards through Bitcoin, go check out ShakePay. Once again, guys, that's shakepay.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 53. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management in a new, different Patagucci jacket today. And of course, Rich Diaz, Acorn Macro Consulting, Tom Brady of Macro. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. What's new? Rich? I got nothing. Nothing's new. Same old, same old. Liz Truss met uh, the new newly minted king of england and i don't know if you've seen that online he was just like oh boy and he said uh, something underneath his breath was not meant for public consumption and something along the lines of like oh back already in the most snide british underhanded way you could possibly do only the king of england could lay that kind of a Smackdown, and it was delicious. So that's all I got to report. Otherwise, same old, same old. What about you, Keith? I, yeah, I did not see that, Keith. Oh boy! But I want to hear your British accent. When is it going to kick in? How long does it take? Up in the morning, to you? <laughs> no, I got, got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Save that uh, one hey, for the my... live event after a couple of drinks. Yeah, that'll be fun. So my mom is visiting this week. So. uh it's pretty good so far we've holy we've, crap we've she's got to be in like 200 going on 200 she's pretty spry for that the century centuries uh and we played bingo we watched another world some fish and chips it's been a great week so far that's amazing yeah. um well i don't know if you guys saw the uh the uh the news there on on our good friends at arrive can a uh, good way to crack off the podcast but Turns out that the Rive can costs $54 million. There's a lot of public outrage right now uh, across the media channels in Canada, 54 million. So it kind of makes sense now. All those five-star reviews, hundreds of thousands of them. It's it's. Imagine if the Looney Hour had $54 million. I mean, we'd be way up there. Great. We're just, just this fringe podcast. $54 million. I'd be poor. 
Oh man. But uh yeah, anyways, programmers apparently recreated a bunch of a uh, bunch of massive tech companies um uh that do you know apps for a living. I guess they recreated the Arrive Can app in 48 hours. Um at a small fraction of the cost. So there's there's now apparently there's going to be an investigation into where all the uh, taxpayer funds went. So that's quite interesting. So lots happening as we kind of exit out of this uh, post-pandemic world, uh, you know, things coming out, both these, you know, the vaccines and the Arrive Can, and, and we're not going to get into that because it's just not worth it, but uh, very, very interesting to say the least. Uh, but I think I'd start start things off this week on... The, the the interest rate channel because that sort of continues to be the topic du jour, uh, so to speak. So we've got you know a, a push higher in yields, which we're going to get into as we go across the world, as we always do. But just looking domestically here, you've got the Canada five-year bond yield uh, making new highs, touching three point six percent earlier this week. So we're actually getting some news from some of the big Canadian banks pushing their mortgage rates up by about 20 basis points on their fixed rate mortgages. So your fixed rate mortgages are going up another 20 basis points or so. Um, there's some concerns. If you look around the world, what's happening with uh, you know bond yields that, uh, that we might not be out of the woodworks just yet in terms of higher fixed rate mortgages. So you could be looking at a fixed rate mortgage in Canada at about 6% come November. Uh, you could be looking at a variable rate, depending on what the Bank of Canada does on October 26th. It seems like it's priced in for 50 basis points. Are we going to get 75? Maybe. So that could look, you could be having a variable and a fixed rate of 6% in Canada on obviously Ouch. a highly levered household sector. Um, it's going to be very, very fascinating. An interesting note here, um, one of the things that maybe isn't being talked about as much is the people that are coming up for renewal, right? We talked about this a little bit before, but you know, roughly each year, about 20% of mortgages will turn over and come up for renewal. Um, and so right now, uh, borrowers renewing five-year fixed-rate mortgages today on average, we'll be seeing monthly payments rise about $100 for every $100,000 originally borrowed. So again, if you had a $500,000 mortgage that's renewing, you should see about a $500 monthly increase in your payments. Um, that's some some good stats there from uh, Ben Rabideau of North Cove Advisors. So the, the interest rate shock uh, will take some time to filter through, but we all are obviously starting to see that. And you'll see that more and more as people come out for renewal on their mortgages over the coming, you know, six to 12 months. That's it. That's all I got. Can we at least discuss a little bit about the protests regarding the inf the interest rate hikes, please? I know I don't want to get you in trouble, Steve, but oh yeah, no, that was uh, come on, okay. we got to talk I about mean, it for two minutes. <laughs> yeah, if anyone was following along, there's um a group in Surrey, British Columbia, which created uh, a protest or a rally around rising interest payments on their mortgages, basically saying, what about us homeowners? Um, and so the media picked up on it. Um, there was like this big rally and protests and the media picked up on it. CBC news, I think the globe and mail, like it was, it was widely covered. Uh, so they were basically out, out there protesting against all these interest rate hikes. Um, the, the funny thing about it was 
Well, I think this is probably like the first of many to come, truthfully. Um, the funny thing about this one was that if you actually look at the, a lot of the names of people that were attending, because I guess there's like a Facebook group or something, that it turned out to be like predominantly like realtors, mortgage brokers, like people that are already like in the industry, people were there protesting, being like, I own multiple properties and I am getting slaughtered. Like, and uh, so people didn't really have a whole lot of sympathy. Uh, so that was quite, quite fascinating. And I think the guy that originally had started it, he started on TikTok. He kind of went viral and picked up some steam. I think he was like, I, correct me if I, he, I could be wrong. I think he was a real estate lawyer and there's like pictures of him on Instagram with like a Bentley in his driveway. It, it just it, it's Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a tough look. Oh boy. Well, let's talk about, let's sort of now move into, you talked about, you know, they're not getting any sympathy, but you know, who is getting sympathy now? out there right now because it's it's an interesting question because um i think if you go out in any city right now you know the restaurants are still full you know people are still doing stuff and it's only you know people in the financial market world not only but and following this closely like we're, we're able to see where potentially there's a you know pretty big roadblock coming up but uh i mean obviously steve uh you know, a lot of people that are exposed to higher rates, you know, they're feeling stress with that now. So, you know, we, we have to be sympathetic and empathetic, depending on which which group they're in there. I don't think anyone has shown any sympathy towards the policymakers. So that's on both the Bank of Canada as well as in, in Ottawa. We, I think we can, I know Rich and I, you, were, you and I were sharing some data there earlier uh, today about uh, what's happening at the provincial and even the federal level in terms of what's happening with uh, interest expense for, for people. But, but Steve, like what other stories are you hearing out there and, you know, excluding this smaller group and, you know, you know, they are experiencing stress because they are being exposed to higher rates and where there's no sympathy for them is because, you know, it's perceived that, you know, they simply leveraged up, you know, which, so they're benefiting from that, but let's make no mistake about it. There are a, it's a pretty big group out there right now across the country that's already experiencing stress, not just from higher rates, but in inflation. I mean, again, like you go to the grocery store, food prices are through the roof. It's, 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 it's really tough, you know, putting everything together, but what else are you seeing out there, Steve, to make it more real life? I think the biggest thing I'm seeing I mean, I guess from a housing front, sellers are digging in their heels, trying, we're seeing a lot of people pulling listings off the market and saying, I'm going to wait to the spring market and hope for better conditions. Cause the last 20 plus years of housing corrections in this country have been so short lived. And I think it's almost like an implicit bet that inflation is going to roll over and interest rates are going to come down. Like that's pretty much what homeowners I think are betting on. So yeah, I think it has the the probabilities to be a catast catastrophic uh, error or, or lack, you know, misjudgment potentially. I mean, they could end up being correct, um, but I think it really just. I just think that they, so much of this depends on on rates and if they can hold here, right? I just think like I look at mortgage rates five and a half going to six, and yeah, housing activity is really slow. 
uh, you know, like he said, right. Like, you know, people are still in the restaurants and stuff like that. You know, consumer spending has definitely slowed significantly, but you know, things don't look too, too bad. And it's like, how much longer though, can like, once these mortgages start renewing and, and th- th- I just think rates at these levels, are they're just on this level of debt is going to really come home to roost. But I think that's going to take some time. So, so I just wanted to just like add a little wrinkle, you know, I made fun of those people in British Columbia for protesting. And I think it's important to sort of differentiate between a homeowner, uh, someone, a single proprietor, uh, no, not proprietor, excuse me, a, a single family homeowner, or they own a condo here or there, and, and a speculator. And I think what the CBC and those people of this world sort of failed to differentiate, which was a lot of the people protesting those higher interest rates were speculators. And that's the rub in capitalism. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And if you overextend yourself and you make bad calls, which we all want to do from time to time, um, sometimes you, you get you know, you get a margin call, just like the pension funds in the UK that were using leveraged products and were not expecting interest rates to rise and then had a margin call, just like the example of Orange County in 1994, maybe, um, who got when interest rates rose, they got an effective margin call. That's what a lot of these speculators, um, when it comes to property, not just property, long duration assets, whether it's tech, whether it's uh, Bitcoin, whether it's like all these effectively speculative assets that only are viable or only profitable or only realistic or only worth holding when interest rates are extremely, extremely low. As soon as you get a situation where interest rates rise, a lot of these business models crash out. And that's, you know, when I joke and I'm maybe a bit too spiky on this subject, but the people who do not deserve our sympathy are the people who thought that that was going to last forever, whose job it is to make those calls and who got stuff wrong, just like I've gotten calls wrong and I will do in the future. But when it comes to individual homeowners, whether it's a friend of mine who bought a house in just outside of Halifax and was told by a certain technocrat that interest rates would be flat for a long time, that's where I think my sympathy lies. And so I think it's important that we differentiate where maybe some of the media outlets didn't bother doing that. Yeah, I'd love to just quickly jump in there. I think that, um, make no mistake, as someone that earns their living in the real estate space, I, I, I still wholeheartedly believe that this is the cleansing that we need. It is the cleansing that the Canadian housing market desperately needs. It's just... Yeah, unfortunately, there's there. I think there's there are going to be good people that had well intentions, like you said, like the individual homeowner, uh, young family that uh, you know felt like they were falling behind and decided to take on a lot of cheap debt at the top of the market that will get hurt by this, and 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 that's unfortunate. But I think I would agree to your point. You know, the people that loaded up and bought two pre-sale condos. Uh, and they borrowed those pre-sale deposits with their home equity line of credit, you know, tapped into that thing, levered themselves the guilts. I think, yeah, those people, you know, this is a, a lesson in, in, in leverage and speculation. And, and that, that is the cleansing, I think, that, that we need in this housing market after th- basically a 30-year bull market. 
Um, but yeah, I think they're, 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 the long story short is there's going to be collateral damage. And um, I think even, I think it's even for business owners that I feel maybe don't feel like they are directly attached to housing, for example, I think are ultimately going to feel this because this is going to ripple through. I mean, the next stage for this, how this may develop, I mean, nothing in the economic world can stand still. You know, it's either accelerating or, or decelerating. And right now, um, you know, uh, here, so like I, I love American football and I watch this show on, on football. It's called Red Zone football you ever see it but you get to watch all the games at, at once it's all popping up and then you get into the thing they call the witching hour you know it's like the last five minutes and it's like eight games things are, are crazy going on and you can miss the first three quarters of, of the game and it, you're not really missing a lot sometimes but in the last little bit it's it, that's when it gets a bit a bit scary sometimes um, and now we're entering that moment from an economic perspective so here we are now we're into october we're going to start to see September data coming out. Uh, a lot of corporate earnings are going to start to be announced this week. So starting on Friday, and today's Thursday, of course, for the recording here. So uh, you're going to start to see whether, you know, that this witching hour is, is going to take place. And what I mean by that, are we going to start to see both, you know, top-down economic data monthly as well as quarterly to suggest that things are slowing down and they could slow further? Or, you know, maybe the, the worst is behind us. And, and that's what the hope is. And as you know, hope is never a great strategy sometimes. <laughs> but, um, you know, the best scenario right now is that, you know, maybe the, you know, the gully is happening right now. And we do start to flatten up and then things will sort of improve, you know, as we get into, you know, November and, and December. And that will make things easier for all of us. But if it starts to roll over, and right now, we, we, the probability on, on our books is that it, it's it's a lot higher that we are going to roll over. But now we're, you know, because we've been talking with this now for a few months but now it's here, you know, it, it's game day. It's, you know, five or six minutes left. The 49ers are winning as normal, of course. And we'll, we'll see G. where we go. Yeah, <laughs> handsome Jimmy G. Mrs. Icecap loves Jimmy G, by the way. I, so, I, uh, man, no red, blood, red brother woman uh, wouldn't love Jimmy G. I know. She has and permission to leave me for one, one person. It's a handsome G. bloke. Well, I get free tickets, of course, right? If, yeah, if that happened, right. that'd be good. But again, the point is, we're, we're now at that stage, though, in, in the economic cycle with, with data. I mean, we had the CPI, the American CPI data came out this morning. Uh, some of the European data as well came out. So we can jump into that next, maybe. But hey, over the next few weeks, we're going to find out, you know, whether are we going to pull it over the finish line or not. Yeah, let's walk through that uh, U.S. CPI data because um, it came in hotter than expected. Like I said, I think the like markets. You know, we talked about it earlier homeowners in Canada placing an implicit bet that you know inflation will probably be temporary and rates will roll over and everything will be okay. Uh, you know, we had some more U.S. data, which everybody's been waiting on. Um, inflation rose eight point two percent on a year-over-year basis. More importantly, core inflation rising more than expected. So uh, I think the economists' or ex market expectations were were for for a lower inflation print, and and we actually got surprised the upside. So I, I mean, Rich, I don't know, Keith, if either of you guys want to sort of walk through it. I'm sure you guys took a closer look at it, but you know, I think that ultimately 
for those that were betting on sort of the, the Fed pivot, um, this data does not support that, but I'll let you guys sort of jump into it. So for me, there's only just like one thing that, you know, we've gotten a lot of things wrong on this podcast, um, but we've definitely got the following thing right. And it's the darn shelter component, which like in Canada is a lion's share of that CPI. And it continues to ratchet higher. And something we've been talking about, I guess it seems a bit boring to like reiterate it now. I think we've probably been talking about it for a good six months. And the shelter component, which is 41.6%, I'm looking at the chart now, that's how I know it, um, is 41.6% of the core CPI basket ratchet, ratcheted even higher. So shelters, 66 41.6, which means it contributed to core inflation at 2.7. Easy maths. And that is going to be very, very sticky. So although you saw the headline number sort of continue to not necessarily get weaker, but stop rising, it's that core number that I just think is really, really tough. And I think will continue, sorry, excuse me, that, that shelter component, which is contributing to the core, it just, it won't stop rising. The other thing we've discussed also is sort of the breadth and depth of CPI. How do you see like the central tendency of inflation? Is it going up or is it going down? We've discussed trimmed mean CPI from the Cleveland Fed. We've discussed median CPI. We've discussed a bunch of other ones. So there's in Canada, we have different three preferred measures of core. In, in the US, the one I like to look at is median CPI from the Cleveland Fed. And again, continues to rise. And so that means so even though, you know, I actually, I disagreed with the two, got, the two of you before we got onto the pod, I actually thought the inflation print was actually quote unquote good, meaning we're starting to get a little bit of softening in some, some key areas, food, maybe. Um, I have to admit that some of the breadth measures and the most important one, shelter, went in the quote unquote wrong direction. So for a more hawkish Fed, a Fed that's going to be more committed to fighting inflation. So what, what I loved about it is, um, you, know, so, you know, markets are looking, okay, what, what happened last month was this month and what was it relative to expectations? So on the month over month data now, um, not only was it a lot stronger than last month, but it was greater than estimates as well. So, so again, that gives the Federal Reserve that, you know, this ongoing um, uh, a commitment to that they can continue raising rates is what everyone, what they don't want to happen in the financial market world, of course. And at the same time, uh, you know, you know, we keep talking about, hey, the economy is slowing, the economy is slowing, and it was slowing. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, one, one of the GDP estimates that you know, everyone loves to use these days is from the Atlanta Fed. Um, in, it's called the GDP Now forecast or cast, something like that. And we all of a sudden, that spiked higher in, in the last week of September. So not only are we in a period where all of a sudden, you know, inflation is still sticky, it's still strong, we could potentially have a stronger economic data point coming out for, for GDP by the Americans in Q3. And that's like the deathbed for if you're betting on 
you know, the Fed stopping to raise rates. So, so they're not there yet, guys. Like they're going to continue to raise rates unless there's the financial accident. And you want to go through the financial accidents? Wait, you know, wait, that we have? Before, before we, if I may, sorry, before we go into that, I, I just wanted to just talk about just two things. Sorry, one thing, which is relates to the inflation, which is the inflation expectations. So are starting to roll over. And so there's two, sorry, Keith, but there's just like two separate things. There's one, which is the CPI basket consumer price index, which is like, what are you buying? How much you're buying of what are those prices doing? And then there's inflation expectations. And these include break-even inflation expectations, which are market price bonds or consumer inflation expectations from the university of Michigan or the conference board, or there's inflation link swaps, which are again, another bond instrument, but it basically tells you what's going on in the inflation picture or what the market's pricing out. Or there's the Citigroup. City is a Citigroup is a bank, I guess. And they have an inflation surprise index, which compares what inflation is versus the expectations of the market. On all of those measures, break-evens, consumer inflation expectations, inflation like swapped, and Citigroup inflation surprise index, all of them have rolled over, including, by the way, the ISM prices paid. Um, so it's actually sort of fascinating that while the Fed gets more and more concerned with in inflation, which I agree with you, Keith, is what they will do probably, a lot of the measures, like I've named six or five or whatever, are actually rolling over. And so it's, I, yeah, I think it's important that we like, I, I know that muddles the picture, it makes it more complicated, but it's important to just keep that as like something in the back of your mind inflation expectations across the board are actually rolling over. Sorry, Keith, you go. Yeah, and that's interesting. And of course, we need to talk about interesting things in, in a minute. Oh, are we going to have this? Are we going to add the soundtrack, Steve? Are we planning oh, to do you're that? so mean. We're not, well, you know, I thought we were supposed to have a, someone suggested we have a zinger board for you. Like a <laughs> zinger uh, board. What is it called? Those Every like, time, uh, no. What, kazoo. What are those? We need kazoo. <laughs> no, the things that, 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 laugh in the background when when someone makes a, a laugh joke track the laugh yeah, track, la yeah whatever you can, yeah all righty then uh but carrying on with that so what now so that you know the big zinger these days you know the big you know laugh track is that everyone is calling for this pivot and it's very easy to come up with the reasons why it, it's it's going to come down and you know as rich pointed out like a lot of these data points are suggesting you know data is, is going to roll over especially the year year on year data like it's just a mathematical fact it's just the way the numbers work out right but it doesn't mean your price of bread is going to you know it, it went from what two to five bucks and now it's going to go back down to two again that that ain't going to happen it's just going to stay at five bucks um i don't buy bread guys so i don't know the real price of bread i apologize Gluten-free. I'm gluten-free. I'm gluten-free, <laughs> gluten yeah. Gluten-free millennials. <laughs> yeah, I, I like my pizza, and there's lots of gluten in, in my... That's what, that, what, that's I, what eat, you... I eat my avocados with a spoon. Yeah, but with your pizza dough, you want to see the glutens. You need that forming. That's where you get good good strength with, with your Extra dough. Extra gluten. Mrs. Ice Cap. You need to let your dough in. rest for a solid 30 minutes after making it before you do other stuff with it. But back to... Uh, you know, less important things here. What we're looking at is that, you know, everyone continues to call this pivot because if you get the pivot call right from an investment perspective, man, it's a lot of money to be made. Like it's, it's going to be really cool if you're able to do it right. Um, but however, that's what the Fed, they continue to come out and they say, hey, you everyone trying to call a pivot here? 
we ain't going to pivot. We're going to tell you when we're going to pivot because in the past, we've always told the Fed or the Bank of Canada or the ECB when they should pivot. But there's this real battle taking place right now. And, uh, you know, the Fed, they are they are committed to continuing to raise rates. As we like to say, you know, until something breaks. So we need one of those. I, th I think the central banks have one of those signs up there, you know, and, like 53 days without an accident, I think. Right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we I do. Think, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, they should. And I think right now they should have it by the hour, you know, like three hours without an accident, something like that. But like even, even we're, this we're, week. We're going to get into that, by the way, because that's, that's, there's a lot happening behind the scenes. But Keith, continue. Should I get into it now? That's what I was going to Well, jump. no, I was going to ask you guys quickly, just anecdotally, like, I know that the Fed is like data dependent and, and, and fair enough. Um, cough, do you, cough. Yeah. But do you guys feel like anecdotally, I'm genuinely curious. I'm sure we'll get a lot of comments in the YouTube and whatnot, but do you feel like anecdotally like prices maybe aren't necessarily coming down, but they don't, do they, are they still going up? I don't know. Like to, to me, I am seeing a lot of anecdotal things maybe because I'm predominantly in housing, but like, the cost of things to me seems to be coming down. Anecdotally. I love you for saying that. Steve. Anecdotally. I, lo I love you, Steve. Um, I think it's important to remember that when inflation was really budding, that all of the CPI numbers were lagging and everyone was like, how can that be? Remember we, we were talking about this on Twitter. Like I, we would, we would post that inflation was 4% or 5%. Everybody's like, that's ridiculous. Inflation's 30%. Remember it was blah, like blah, food. Blah. They're like food was up like 3%. Everyone's like, dude, have you been to a grocery store? Like, where are you shopping? Exactly. And I think that the opposite might be true now, which is to say that the index, which is a slow moving, cumbersome, flawed, but useful measure continues to ratchet higher. But the anecdotal evidence I agree with you, Steve, you're starting to see some discounting, some sales, some whatever, that's not necessarily being reflected in that index. So the equal and opposite reaction that we saw two years ago, whatever, I, I'm happy you brought that up. I totally agree. I'm going to take the other side of this. I think right now we're having this, it's a pause, you know, a gully, you know, we like to use that word. Um, I think once we get through the fall here, the the opportunity for energy prices to, to scream higher is, is going to be here again. Uh, and that's important because in fair, yeah, that's a fair everything argument. that's created on, on this earth, energy contributes, you know, to the final product coming out. We're also going to have food prices are, are still screaming higher. We're getting into the winter. I, I, I don't know, guys, I think. That, hey, but that's a fair argument. Going, that, yeah. that is a fair argument, but then it's like, what the hell is a central bank going to do about an energy supply shortage? Well, that's just it. More renewables, so Steve. We need even more renewables. Hashtag sarcasm. Hey, Greta Sorry. Thornburg, by the way. Thunberg, right. Thornburg. She was out promoting nuclear power in Germany. Ah. So. There, there is hope go. after all. Well, Christina Freeland was just telling everybody that crude oil is a curse. So, you know, there's that. But sorry, I digress. What were you going to say, Keith? Sorry. Um, so, yeah. so anyway, so the, the point being is that I think it can start to scream higher. So back to like, if we're the central banks and 
you know, Steve says, you know, I don't know how to make any more energy enriched as well as easy. You would have changed policy towards this, 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 and that, but it's, it's still going to take years to get that turned around here. So the only immediate thing that, you know, we can do to try to reduce inflation is to literally, you know, crush the economy again, you know, as you know, as some guys say, you know, some folks will get hurt and, you know, they don't care about the folks, you know, they just want to get this brought down. Um, of course, we now have the newest uh, Nobel Prize for economics winner, quite close to the American. So Ben Bernanke, if you guys Helicopter saw that ben. news. Yeah, Ben was just awarded. So he's, you know, he'll go down in history, the guy that was driving the car and didn't see any of the, the potholes or turn on Come his on. wipers. No, I'm, I'm going to defend Ben. I cannot believe I'm doing this, but I'm defending Ben Bernanke. Oh, buddy, you're going to get roasted mis- oh, in the YouTube. No, no, I'm going to do this. You're going to mis- get skewered. I'm, I don't care. The mistake skewered, is not... roasted. Would it, would they, like, would they turn him slowly, Steve, around the pit? Or would it be like 2008 a fast one to make him dizzy? a depression. There was genuine deflation. There was... You needed to do quantitative easing. Ben Bernanke is famous and did his PhD in the Great Depression. And the mistake that the central bankers did in the Great Depression was raising interest rates and not providing sufficient liquidity for the banking system, which compounded the destruction of assets. Fair enough. I think he, the mistake, wait, let me just finish really quickly. The mistake was using that exact playbook, the same hammer for today's nail. He was not the central banker. And so as much as central bank, Brand Bernanke has shitloads of problems with him. He, I'm sure he has all kinds of moral failings. But the criticism he's getting this week for the Nobel Prize, I think, is wrong. Sorry, Steve. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's fair. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you were going to enter it. Fair enough. Um, Cue the onslaught of YouTube oh comments. <laughs> Once no, again, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to add some sanity back. Well, well the I mean, Keith, so the problem was to the room. The problem was is they 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 engaged in QE for like a decade after. Right, right, like, right. You know, I agree like, with you, but yes. in the initial stages, it was the right thing to do. Anyways, we're okay, we're getting okay. sidetracked. Well, because like, it's actually though it's it's very really important it's very really important conversation because it ties into today. There's so many parallels with it. What's happening here? So my comment on the Bernanke is that, you know, when I comment, he's driving on the road without the wipers going and stuff. You know, drinking his pina colada and all that stuff, and you know, listening to Huey Lewis in the news as as you would, right? Because it's fun stuff. He was the guy that was asleep at the wheel that allowed the housing market to do all these, you know, wonderful things back then. So you, you have that, of course, right? Uh, however, you, if you go back to, you know, Rich, you made a good point. You got to, you know, got to save the world and everything because that's their mandate. And, you know, that's what they would do. And I'm sure we would have done the same thing. But, but Steve made a, a great point is that once it was saved, that they should let everything reset again. Agreed. I and, agree with that completely. Yeah, because then all of a sudden, you, I always talk about price discovery. You know, right now, like, what is the true price of the Canadian 10-year bond? Of the JGB. <laughs> yeah, J, yeah, we need to go into that one. Absolutely. So let's use that as an example. So that's the Japanese government bond. So the, the 10-year JGB, it went, I think, three days without Four trading. days now. Oh, four days, was it? Okay. So, you know, again, this is what's like, this is probably. Can you explain that? Can you explain that? Especially like to like some of the listeners that are like listening to like, you know, so the JGB. Can you explain that to me? (laughs) It doesn't trade. 
doesn't trade for four years or sorry, four days. days. Yeah. Um, maybe explain sort of the significance of that. For yeah. People that so so bond traders. people that know me well, like I'm, I am a U.S. dollar bull. I think it has the opportunity to surge. It could double from here. And, and one of the reasons is two reasons why it will surge. One is because everything else is so crappy. But the second reason is because of liquidity. Is the U.S. Treasury market is the only market that's big enough in the world to absorb money. So you can put in a billion dollars this morning and you can sell it again in the afternoon. And you know what's going to happen to the price in between? Maybe not too much, right? If you have liquidity for any market, it's gold, like the housing market. There's no liquidity right now. Like what, what's the true price of, you know, the house on X Street? Like nobody knows because there's no, there's no bid on it. So when we say the, the Japanese government bond, the 10-year issuance, which is the benchmark, the most widely issued bond in Japan, which has the second largest debt load in, in the world behind the Americans, if that doesn't trade for four days, I mean, that would scare the crap out of you. And of course, it's not going to trade because there's only one buyer. That's the Bank of Japan. At the same time, you know, they're trying to, they've really put in a soft peg on the yen. So they're trying to hold that still. So the Japanese, you know, they're over there, you know, they're like Bambi sprawled out on the ice, trying not to have anything crack or or break through. But when we go through uh, like earlier, like how many days without a financial accident, man, like Japan, like every morning I'll wake up and I can't wait to see what's happening with, with the Japanese market. And um, so that, that's, that's a big one, Steve, to say, hey, it hasn't traded for, for four days. And, uh, but back to, the, I guess, the original you know, Bernanke story. Um, and it's always, you know, hindsight is, is, I'm pretty good with hindsight. You know, I usually get it 90% right. But it's the same thing today. If they let the world return to have a proper price discovery, you know, find a true value for something. Back in 08, 09, you know what? That would have happened. Bond yields would have screamed higher. A lot of banks would have went under and stuff like that. But I can tell you firsthand, for every bank that went under, for every dollar that went under with the bank, there's at least $5 out there in fresh capital that would have rushed in to start up a new bank. So in Canada, let's just say, for example, all five banks go under, you know what the, this is what you do you close the market for two weeks and you say you put up a sign on wherever they want to put it and they'll say hey we have five banking licenses available you know please apply you need to have you know at least 100 billion in assets or 50 billion or whatever you know what you're going to get like 50 different guys applying for that license and, and you start from scratch again and, and go ahead you keep going the challenge, of course, is that all the policymakers are all friends with all the big bankers anyway on the commercial side. Um, if you're with a commercial, if you're with a central bank, your next job is likely with one of the commercial banks. Everyone in Ottawa or DC or London or Tokyo, you know, they're all feeding off the same trough as well. So they they just can't let it go under. That's that's the score that that they keep. So then, as as you say, Rich, here we go, like 10, 15 years later. And we're now back to the exact same point in time. And hey, 10 years from now, Powell will get his, you know, his uh, Nobel Prize. I'm sure Yellen's going to get one as well. Oh, Steve, you had to give us Yellen's two quotes from one day to the next. Or do you have it, Rich? Yeah, well, no, I was just going to say, go for it, Steve. Uh, okay, so Janet Yellen here. I mean, this is why people have no faith in politicians and policymakers. 
So Janet Yellen uh, says, U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen, I'm not seeing anything in markets that causes me to be concerned. The following day, she says, I'm concerned about the loss of adequate liquidity in treasuries. So there you have well, it. I mean, what I was going to say is really bringing it full circle to the people in Surrey protesting and relates to the banking sector collapse in 2008 and, of course, what's going on now. And it's my next pickup line. It's called Moral Hazard. And um, that's what, you know, Keith is, you know, skirting around and dancing around the, the, the term that he was, you know, trying to like, he did a good job articulating it without saying the actual term, which is moral hazard and economics. It's a term moral hazard is a situation where economic actor has an incentive to increase their risk. Think British, uh, sorry, British Columbian speculator, housing speculators. So they, they have an incentive to increase their exposure to risk because it doesn't, they don't never bear the full brunt of their costs, e.g. there's always a bailout. So, I mean, that's very obvious. Um, we've seen hundreds of examples of that. Um, and, and that's what we've been subject to for the last, I don't know what, 15 years, Keith, moral hazard. You're a situation where the actors are not appropriately incentivized or rewarded with the risks that they take, e.g. they get their bonus, even though they tank the company that they run, or they get bailed out, even though they make bad decisions, or they cut interest rates. To, and, and Keith is exactly right. This idea that when a company goes bankrupt, those assets just vaporize, they go to money heaven. I don't know. That's not at all how capitalism or any real system works. It's the equity holders that get wiped out normally. The bondholders jockey for position. They distribute the assets and other people come in and either use the existing manufacturing plant or an intellectual property or whatever it is. And, you know, life goes on. And so it's this moral hazard thing that we've been dealing with for a long time. And there you go, Keith, I just taught you something. Any new pickup line for uh, Mrs. Ice Cap? Wait a second. How do you spell it? <laughs> I'm a terrible speller. I can't spell. spell. I want to sort of jump in next. Um, it, it ties in with with a lot of this, or maybe it don't. I'm just using that to go into it. But the <laughs> um, again with the bond market. So over in the UK, so their you know their long bond is down about fifty percent, so half a hundred percent year to date and you, you talk about you know moral hazards and then you know some folks lost some money and, and stuff like that but i think people know by now with, with the with the uk bond market going down so much it's creating a lot of challenges over in the uk and you know this, this is where you know rich and steve would say <laughs> challenges with some quotes wrapped around it uh but it's created this environment that has never before been envisioned. So I wanted to share with you a conversation I had about maybe five years ago now with, with, uh, with the pension fund up, up in, up in Toronto. And, uh, you know, they're in this like 60, 40 world. And, and I said, listen, you, you guys, you, you guys get the potential here to get completely, I just get your, your bond portfolio is going to get like just trucked. And, um, and they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, we can go in this scenario where the bond market could fall, you know, 10, 20, 30%, something like that. And, you know, they're like, 
okay, we understand what you're saying. We will want to run this by our consultants because people may not realize this. It's really funny in that, like in the investment world, investment managers, you know, we're, we're licensed. We go all through the stuff and you have to be licensed to, you know, to manage money and stuff like that. When in actual fact, the largest money managers in the world are really the consultants. So like the guys at Deloitte, Mercers, and guys like that. And they're not licensed as investment managers. It's kind of ironic here. But the reason I share this story is because, you know, I, I tell these guys, you have the probability of having permanent losses in your bond portfolio. And they say, well, that's, it's like, it's not going to happen. So they go to the consultants and, you know, the consultants come back and tell them, which they relay to me. They said, you know, we went through, you know, hundreds of scenarios, you know, with our models and not once did it ever pop up that we have the prob the probability probability of having these kinds of losses in our bond portfolio. So therefore, you know, the, in the end, the conversation just ended. You know, we didn't become friends with, with the pension fund at the end of the day. And the pension fund today, you know, I'm sure this year they're probably sitting on you know, minus 10 to minus 15% losses. But the scenario I presented to them, it's exactly what's happening in the UK right now. And it comes back to the situation where if, if if all of a sudden there's a sudden rush to sell stuff in your bond market and there's no buyer there, you know, that's when all the bad things start to happen. And, and that's what the average Canadian is just not aware of right now. So you're sitting in a, in a balance fund. If for some reason the Canadian bond market experiences this sell-off moment in time, um, after it starts or during the weekend, whenever it is, the Bank of Canada is absolutely going to come out and come to the rescue. That's going to happen. The, the only question is how much stress is created, you know, before and after the event. And uh, which kind of leads to what, you know, Rich and I, you were sharing some data earlier about the, the interest burden or the amount that's allocated to interest expense by uh, the federal government and provincial governments in, in their bond portfolio. And the reason this is related because, you know, interest rates have gone up so high. And, uh, you know, so, uh, we, you know, we found a great report this morning. Uh, it was a Simon Fraser Institute. Is that one of the big think tanks? Yeah, it is. People don't Canada. seem to like their... Uh, uh, the Fraser Institute, sorry. Fraser Fraser Institute. Not, yeah. Well, they're yeah. right wing, so... Nah, that's why people don't like them. Got it. Okay. <laughs> but um, okay, so what? So what's some some interesting? Like, you know, I think anyone that comes out with data that I can't find elsewhere, it, it's it's great. And uh, so the the report I found here is, is based on the 2020 21 fiscal tax years. So it's it's important because it's before rates started to scream higher, right? And what I wanted to find out is because what I'm curious about right now is what everyone should be, you know, as, as homeowners, mortgage owners, credit card owners like that, you know, we're all exposed to rates going higher. And so, you know, it's going to be curious is, you know, what happens at the federal level and provincial level, how much of our tax revenues are going to be allocated to the interest burden? Because it, you know, they're like anywhere else. You know, they borrow a lot of money. They have to roll it over and things like that. But prior to the interest rate cycle uh, that we're experiencing right now, these are just some random numbers, and, and you know, they're going to be lower than what we're currently seeing. But at, at the federal level, about seven percent of our tax revenues coming to Ottawa is used just to pay interest on, on debt. Right. So seven percent. And I'm just going to guess, let's just say the average rate on their borrowings is at, at 2%, right? 
Rich, it might be lower, maybe. I'm, I'm not quite sure. No, I would you know, say that's it is. probably right. You could probably back it out, but that's and, probably not much yeah. higher than that. So that's it, it, like back then for this 2021 study, it's uh, about 20 billion a year. And that's actually greater than the equalization money that's sent out to the provinces, which is just a little bit below that's a 20. Fun fact. It's incredible. Like a lot of Canadian provinces, they need, you know, those payments from Ottawa, right? So to sort of balance their budgets. Uh, employment insurance premiums that that Ottawa is collecting is about $21 billion, right? To give you an idea that the size of this, what, what's going on. If you look at Ontario as an example, if you look at their interest cost uh, combined with what they're paying, it's actually... Uh, Two of them combined is about twenty billion as well. Uh, that's greater than what they're spending on post-secondary education in Ontario. And it's also greater than infrastructure. See how it's how it's moving along here, and like the final one to, to give you an idea, like at the national level, uh, interest cost. It's equal to pension benefits, so CPP. No, oh, yeah, CPP and. QPP, that's Quebec Pension Plan, I guess, as well as uh, education. So from kindergarten to, to 12, grade 12. Uh, again, these are all incredible numbers. The province that's in most trouble. So back then it would have been Newfoundland. So about 15%, so 1-5% of Newfoundland's tax revenues are going to, is going to pay interest on their debt. So think about what it's going to be now when they have to roll over all this debt. Yeah, so, uh, it's a really it's good point. It's going to skyrocket, right? Yeah, Keith. I mean, we chatted about this. I remember reading one of your ice cap reports, but you know, uh, people forget that, that the onset of the pandemic, right? Like uh, the Bank of Canada to come in and start absorbing um, provincial debt because you know basically had gone no bid and the spreads were blowing out. So I think like people, I know in Canada, we get so focused on. Am I frozen? A little bit. <laughs> Anyways, people in Canada get so focused on the household debt burden, right? Like the burdens of, of households. And and we just forget about, uh, you know, the, the federal government, provincial governments, and, and everybody's sort of in, in this ride together. Some will fare better than others and, and, and whatnot, but... There's actually some good data from April of 2021, the federal budget released. Uh, if you look at their sort of forecasting, they had the 10-year government bond in Canada uh, in 2022. They said it would be at 1.9%. I believe right now we're at about 3.2. So they've missed that. And then in 2023, they said it'd be at about 2.3. So the federal government's own budget sort of forecasting is going to be way off. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting to sort of go back and look at that and sort of, sort of see uh, that these rate movements are catching everybody off guard. Okay, but wait a second. You know, I have to say, although I, I, I agree with both of you in the sense that, you know, issuing loads and loads of debt at the short end of the yield curve, which is exactly what Christina Furland did when the pandemic hit was not smart at all, because that's where most of the interest rate hikes happened and you have to roll over that debt. Again, not smart. Your interest burden will definitely increase as a percentage of revenue and percentage of GDP. I will say that nominal GDP growth is a hell of a drug. So what do I mean by that? If you're 
inflation is high, and we've talked about this before, your implicit price deflator, which is the inflation for the whole economy is high. And in Canada, it's like eight or 9%, I can't remember. You have a situation where even though you've actually made terrible decisions and inflation's really high and people are suffering, your debt to GDP actually falls. And you say, Rich, how's that possible? Because your inflation, your nominal GDP, so what's nominal GDP? It's real GDP plus some kind of inflation component increases more than your debt. And so funnily enough, Canada's federal government debt to GDP is down to 42% from a peak of 58%. And so this is why a couple of years ago, central bankers were talking about, oh, we want to target a higher inflation rate. Um, and it's just like, and of course, now everybody's, of course, walking back on that, just like they walked back on M MMT, just like they walked back on UBI and a bunch of other stupid things people talk about, renewables. And But it, it is interesting the way that, you know, some inflation is useful, right? Because you, in effect, you deflate your debt burden. Uh, but Keith's point is spot on. We can, we're, I think we're about to see a major inflection point in how much money our governments, not just Canada, by the way, globally, spend on servicing debt. And I, I think it's, it's, it's going to hurt. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt on what we do, infrastructure spending, et cetera. Sorry. Do you, do you see politically, I mean, it's going to be interesting. Like, do you foresee this like, big pivot of like we've been in this era of especially in the last like five plus years of just massive federal deficit spending just to, to flip back to like now austerity is like become popular like do you do you guys like foresee that personally like i feel like nobody really wants to go through pain but i'm like i, I also see people like it's funny i always like look on like Twitter comments or I'll go on like Instagram and, and I'll just read like social media comments, which is never necessarily the greatest barometer of like information, but I always look at it just from like a sentiment perspective. And to me, it feels like people are like, yeah, we got to get this inflation like under control. And like, you know, the government needs to stop spending money. And so it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I wonder if we actually get back to this where austerity becomes like a popular political policy. I'll I'll go I'll go on this one. Uh, one quick point though before we, we jump into this, TD Bank they just issued a fifty-year bond at eight and a quarter percent interest. Yeah, I was making some big head headlines. High ticket. Yeah. What a high ticket? Or you want to? You would I would it? take what? it. Go buy it, man. Fill your boots. It's out there. <laughs> that's it's I mean obvious to me that that's a terrible idea. So the question is, you don't look at yeah, these 8%. from an investment perspective. You look at it from a borrowing perspective. You're like, always, you know, do the 360 thing. So, why, you know, why the heck is TD borrowing at 50 years at 8%? I don't know. Maybe it offsets Good something point. else on, on their book somewhere. Because remember, guys, banks have some really smart guys and, and teams working there to help to offset a lot of exposures they have. And like you're like we're only aware of like one percent of the exposure, so you, you you can never take something like that in in isolation. You're right. But you're the right. fact is, they did issue a, a fifty year bond, 
Yeah, I think it's eight and one eighth percent. I think it is. Um, anyway, it's just interesting, right? It's just what well, is interesting. If so, one of Canada's largest banks has to pay eight percent to get capital, it, it's unsecured. So it's an unsecured. Okay. Debt. So if, if something did happen to the bank, like they're the last ones to line up to get paid, and you know who knows what what they get on it. How, but, hey, how they, do you how do you foresee a lot of this next? couple of weeks and months playing out i'm actually more particularly curious about your thoughts on england for example or the uk um you know you've got the bank of england's uh central bank bailey there coming out and saying we are serious you, you know pension funds you've got three days to sort of fix your books here before we withdraw you know our, our qe programs that we had to intervene with how do you how do you foresee that playing out I think England will make it to the quarterfinals and then they'll lose. And, <laughs> and Rich won't shots. know what to do with his life. In yeah. Penalty shot. They always lose in penalties. The Germans will beat them, of course. You know, that's the, uh, that's the way it'll work out. Uh, Steve, to answer your question, I, I think this risk with the UK situation has been contained right now. You think? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Subprime I, I, you know, has been contained. Okay. <laughs> in the UK. Um, I mean, they, they're putting a backstop on it. You know, the, the currency is, is recovering. The, the Fed is obviously helping them. And by the way, on the Fed swap lines this week, uh, the Swiss, uh, the Swissy, they borrowed, I think it was $3 billion on the swap line. And people say, well, big deal. And I say, yeah, that's for Credit Suisse, right? That's, that's what the money is for. Maybe UBS as well. So what, what people maybe don't appreciate is that... Um, when, when these big banks run into problems, they need U.S. dollars. That's, that's what they need. And the Swiss National Bank doesn't have U.S. dollars lying around, nor, nor does the um, you know, ECB or Bank of Canada. So you have to get U.S. dollars somewhere. You, you get it from the Fed. And it just happens to be an amount that's very close to what might be needed to help keep the Swiss banks flowing again. Uh, as, as for where we go next, Steve, uh, I, I continue to think we're, we're on an edge here. And, uh, it, we, you know, we, we can flip one way or the other. It, you, know, you know, people hear that, they automatically think it's going to go on the wrong side of it. You know, it's going to be really bad. Uh, but again, you know, it, it could, I mentioned, I think a couple of weeks ago, it, uh, and even you guys looked at me like, what the hell are you saying? I, I think we could be getting closer to the trough in, in equities. So maybe it's 20% lower from here or 10. I, I don't know. But. Man, you're going to get roasted on the YouTube comments no, now too. No, yeah. I, I agree with, with, uh, with, uh, I mean, I, yeah, what I, I said I, last week when, when there was sentiment member and I did get roasted in the comments because my thin skin, I uh, brought myself to the, the YouTube comments and then I started crying, but uh, people were just like, Oh, you're nuts. It's like, dude, the sentiment indicators, the technical indicators, they're all all cratered. You can only sell off so much before there's the capitulation index, which is something I track from a company that I used to work for that I won't plug. Um, it's all already down. Sorry, Keith, Keith Sadiq, you guys go for yeah, it. Yeah, like but I'm, but I'm not saying that like, we've reached the bottom yet, right? So don't no, no, I'm not saying that either. I'm saying that I'm just saying that we we could be getting closer to this. But see, like over the next few months, the, the big risk we have right now. I suggest when the uh, companies start to report Q3 earnings, earnings, it's not what, yeah, it's not their earnings they're reporting, it's their guidance. And if I'm running one of these big companies, I'm warning. I'm just going to just get it out there, right? Let's put the bar low. Uh, I would be very concerned for the banks 
even though they can always prop up numbers one way or the other, but their loan portfolios. I mean, I I think in Canada, take, you mean, and and the Americans as no, well. No, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't agree with that's that. gonna. Well, well, we'll see. We'll see how they come out with. Uh, I think Friday the U.S. banks start to come out. So uh, Larry, Larry McDonald we'll had a really those. Larry McDonald had a really good tweet. Tweet. He's a great follow on Twitter. If you don't follow him, uh, it's at Co- Convert Bond. Anyways, he's the Bear Traps report. Smart guy. Uh, so he, he says, you know, why are things breaking? He goes, let's look at the past rate hiking cycles. So uh, April 2004 lasted until June of 2006, uh, raised rates by 425 basis points. Took 26 months to do that. And then you had September 2015 to December of 2018, 39 months, raised rates 225 basis points. This year, we've raised 300 basis points in six months, and uh, you got $50 trillion more leverage um, and a low coupon bond debt in the global system versus 2018, so $50 trillion more leverage. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty staggering when you kind of break the numbers out like that. Yeah, they're, they're big numbers. They are. and uh, But we see where we go here. I mean, like we come back to... You know, the risk that we know, and we're still waiting them to fall through here. It, again, Japan, I, I don't know how they get out of this. Same with the Chinese. I mean, CNY is deteriorating, you know, every single day. Hong Kong, they, they continue to spend excess reserves to, to, to uh, support the peg. The Italians, at some point, you know, they're going to have to pay Brussels. That That's coming up imminently. So we'll, we'll see where we shoot through here. But again, the possibility, though, is that, again, if we can get through the, the UK with their crisis, and I, I think we have, maybe, maybe I'll be wrong, right? Maybe in an hour from now, you know, sterling has gone to zero, but I, I don't think so that's where, where happen. are you most concerned these days? If you're like, okay, maybe the UK has, maybe they've contained what they needed to contain. You've still got sort of you know, rumblings about Credit Suisse, you've got what's happening with the Japanese yen and the JGB market. Where do you feel the largest risks are today? Yeah, so the risk is that, let's just say it's it's the Italians or the Japanese. One of them, it, it just pops. They, they can't hold the ball underwater anymore. And then simultaneously, everything else goes pop, 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 pop. You know, that, that that's what happens. That's what the risk is. When the UK had their problem, the UK went 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 pop, and you know everything moved a bit. And I'm telling you, like the phone lines are lit up, everyone's chatting. Okay, how do we solve this? And uh, but that's what the risk is. And for anyone who's short, incredibly bearish, you know the risk that if you're on that side of, of the ledger is that, you know, the policymakers are able to contain it. You know, that's what happens. But think about it, though. Like, either way, we have this huge debt load around the world. No one can tolerate these spiking interest rates. Everyone can adjust to a, a slow trending move in, in anything. That's just the way we are. It just we all adjust to it. Like the sudden spikes is where it um, where it'll come up. So that's why, again, for us, you know, I always talk about these fat tail events and everything. And, you know, the way to really take advantage of something like this is to make sure you have some kind of exposure on where if it, if it does happen, you're going to benefit from the U.S. dollar just like surging higher because that, that's the outcome behind it. So, so I just want to like, so back to your point, Steve, just like, sorry, two points ago, which is I agree, like 
it's undeniable there's much more leverage in the system. But I think the one important difference that I see versus what happened in 2008 is the cross-border claims. So what do I mean by that? So the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank's central bank, um, has data on what countries owe one another and in what currency. And so what does that mean? So if you have an incredible amount of liabilities and you're country A, or you have assets in country B, and the cross-border claims in, an, in, a, in an, another way of saying it is sort of your contagion or how affected or affected, whatever you are by a particular country, either spreads going up or inability to pay or cash flow issues or tax policy or whatever it is. And so the, the global's central bank, central bank, the Bank of International Settlements, aka the BIS, aggregates something called the cross-border claims. And they do this for banks and they do this for the non-bank sector. And what's really important to note is that 2008, this was 20% of GDP. And if you look at the chart, which we will share, uh, it was a, you know, a ski slope. It was Mount Everest all the way up from 6% in 1985 all the way to 20% in 2008. Interestingly, now the cross-border claims, so how sensitive certain countries are in aggregate, of course, are to other countries is that the same as it was in 2000. So it's 10, uh, 12%. And I think that that's, I think one of the reasons why, for example, I think the EM has been able to survive thus far. They have lower debt levels and a much, much lower foreign debt exposure than they might've had 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it's just something when we're looking at what you said, Steve, which is really important, that you know, $50 trillion of extra exposure, it's also important to know that the cross-border claims, I think, are way, way, way lower. And I think that's an important difference. Yeah. I mean, I think Keith really, I mean, it's a great point. I think Keith also summarized it very, very well, which is to, to, to look at the bigger picture with this, like, the, the, I think the real bubble is at the sovereign level. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're going to see ballooning interest payments um, you know, from, from all levels of government and they're struggling to obviously, you know, with this and, and we're seeing the, the ramifications of that. So, and it's like, it's, it's again, in this environment, that's why I was asking you guys earlier about like the, the flip back to maybe some level of austerity because you can't, it's pretty hard to raise taxes in this kind of an environment. It's like drawing blood from a stone, but maybe, maybe, maybe they can. Um, but yeah, I mean, tax revenues have to be down, right? I mean, how much of your tax revenues are you generating off of, you know, in Canada, that's property sales, residential property transactions, capital gains taxes from those ever inflating houses. And obviously the US, I think that's probably more focused in the stock market uh, every single year when that goes up 10% a year, right? So yeah, I, I just I start to wonder about uh, government tax receipts. Um, yeah, it's just one more. Con I know we're running a bit longer, maybe, but uh, just one quick comment on that. So, if you go back to the austerity days at the uh, the eurozone in the EU, you know they 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 experienced back in eleven or twelve. When was it, Rich? I don't remember. It was like twelve it, to sixteen, basically. There was there was no austerity. Instead of like for the budgets, instead of spending, instead of increasing their spending by twenty percent, you know they increased it by twenty five percent. 
So then they say we reduce spending by five percent. <sighs> they, they they still increase spending. So I'm not. They a all believer. ran deficits, is what Keith is trying to say. They all continue yeah, to they run continue deficits to past their own Maastricht Treaty numbers. Sorry, keep going. Correct. So I don't think Steve, we're going to be able to to do any austerity because you know like one of the things to add on to what was the risk event here with, with canada the risk is event is that if all of a sudden you know uh, our interest burdens are you know increasing exponentially that gets reflected on the currency side so just as sterling you know went from you know what do they go one 130 down to 105 or 120 to 105, whatever the movement was, like it's a good 20% drop. I think that same situation can happen with the Canadian dollar. So Canadian dollar right now for, uh, I don't know, a spot for the December contract is about one, it's about 73 cents maybe. Um, you know, we, we can go down to mid sixties. Budget, budget like by the way, April, Wait, 2021, Rich, budget ahead like this, of 80 Rich. cents. Here you go. Better. We heard you. We heard you the first time. <laughs> I know. I like the fonts, right? I like to snap my fingers all the time. Federal budget in Canada, by the way, had the, the had it at eighty cents into twenty two and twenty three. So take that for what it's worth. There she was, gone. I think that's a good way to to wrap it up. Uh, lots, lots happening in the world right now. And uh, so, yeah, we hope we, that you continue to stick along with the journey here and we'll try to stay current on, on all these uh, events and things that are happening in these, in these financial markets and hopefully give you at least a little bit of guidance or things to think about so you can sort of, you know, plan your own household or business accordingly. And uh, we'll have more updates on the Looney Hour event in Toronto for December 1st, at the Hockey Hall of Fame. We should have tickets most likely going on sale uh, next week uh, with the release of next week's podcast. So we will update you on that. Uh, but as always, we appreciate your support. All we ask is that you share this episode with at least one friend or family member and uh, leave us a five-star review. We appreciate that. And we'll see you next week.